Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Just head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, the predictive index is looking for a senior UX researcher. This is a remote position. Constructive is looking for a senior interactive designer. This is a remote position. Black Visions is looking for a communications director in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And Vox Media is looking for a senior motion designer. This is a remote position. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry, and for this week's interview, I'm talking with Manuel Godoy. Manuel is the CEO of Black Sands Entertainment. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Manuel Godoy, the CEO of Black Sands Entertainment. I am a writer, I am a publisher, and I also run an animation studio. So I have a lot of things going on. But my goal is to make, you know, Black history before slavery a relevant thing. And we've been doing that pretty well over the last five years. So I'm thankful for you having me today. Yeah. How has uh, this year been going for you so far? Uh, it's been going pretty good. I mean, we started the year off with a Shark Tank episode, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> momentum is definitely on our back right now. I kind of want to just go ahead and just jump right into Black Sands Entertainment. I spent a lot of time yesterday and actually over the past few days just like checking out the app, checking out the titles and everything. For those of uh, who are listening who may not be familiar, can you kind of give an introduction to what Black Sands Entertainment is and what it's about? Yes. Black Sand Entertainment is a comic book publisher who also does different mediums. So we also have digital content on BSB Comics. We have animations and stuff like that. But our bread and butter is comic books. And most of our comic books are about black history before slavery. We have plenty of titles about that. We have we expanded significantly last year from uh, three or four different titles to about 16 now. And we're just on the move, like constantly moving forward, trying to tell the story about our people that's not always negative. I felt like there's too much negative content out there for black Americans to consume and that we need to have something more on a positive side, some kind of legacy that we can live up to. So even if you have very humble beginnings, you can still see a great path forward in your life. I love, love, love that whole message of doing that. And I mean, in a way, that's kind of what, I mean, I don't want to say that what we're doing is sort of the same, but I think in terms of trying to make sure to uncover the history that people may not know about, 
I totally, completely sort of vibe with that idea. What does a typical day look like for you? I mean, it sounds like you're juggling a lot of stuff. Oh, it's chaotic. There's no typical day. That's why I need to hire some staff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm currently looking for an editor-in-chief. Well, not an editor-in-chief, but a lead editor for our company. You know, so they could take that side of the publishing side of my um, life off my hands. But yeah, we're definitely looking for um, ways to break up my days because my days are purely chaotic. I think I spend maybe 10% of my time actually making content because I'm in charge of so many things. So I would love to get that to 40% if possible. But my typical days are purely chaotic. We have a lot of press. We have a lot of scouting and recruiting and negotiating. Of course, I have to be very um, relevant on social media. So that's also a big factor in my my life, you know? Yeah, I mean, I see you are super active on TikTok. Like, I, I watched probably most of the videos that you've got up. How has social media kind of helped you as you build Black Sands Entertainment? Well, it just gives me independence. One thing is, you know, it's a new age nowadays. That's why I don't really knock companies like uh, Milestone Media, right? It's like I'm not, I'm not a fan of their business model, like how they how they originally started. But I don't knock them for it because there was limited options in the 90s. It's not like they had much of a choice, right, but to work with the industry. Uh, social media nowadays allows us to completely um, circumvent the traditional gatekeepers of this space. And so you know, we can make our own customer bases. We can get our own investors without having to basically go through the thing. Also, um, big shout out to Barack Obama for allowing Regulation CF to even exist in the first place, because prior to that, you had to be basically rich and white to invest in any small company. You weren't going to get investments from people unless you had significant connections already. And now with Regulation CF, companies like ours and even other businesses, Black-owned, can actually go out to the community and raise capital through unaccredited investors, right? So that's a huge thing that happened recently. So I think the the technology, the the, the ability to go directly to your consumers gives people with with the drive to really like scale and grow and make a difference without having to basically change their fundamental beliefs in order to be successful. You know what I mean? Yeah. And just for, for folks that are listening, Regulation CF is regulation crowdfunding. And one of the rules for that is that you can raise, I think it's like a maximum of $5 million through crowdfunding, like over a 12 month period. Like I know that's one of the rules of it, right? Yeah, that's for unaccredited investors. So after that, um, you go into Regulation A, and then you have to do um, only accredited investors. Right? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money for most people. Companies that are raising five million dollar rounds, they tend to be ready to go at that point. Like they're not, they're not, they're not struggling anymore. Now they're in market and they they know what they're doing and they're trying to scale. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean the advent of crowdfunding, you know, overall, I think has really helped a lot of independent creators to get their ideas out there, like in the market. Like I remember, and I mean, this didn't start with Kickstarter, but I know Kickstarter was probably one of the more prominent platforms that was really trying to build on this, this sort of, I guess, build on this idea that creatives can fund their own ideas through their fans and patrons and stuff like that. But I remember like when it came around 2009, 2010, it was hard to get people on board with even the idea of crowdfunding. And now it's it's pretty common to use Kickstarter or use similar platforms to be able to raise money like that. It's definitely something that 
just gives us freedom, you know. So I think that's what was the downfall of Milestone Media. I think they had great IP. They probably had great numbers, sales, but it wasn't to the liking of DC and Diamond. So they killed them, right? DC and Diamond said die, and they had no choice. They had to die because they had, they had signed deals with them, right? And now they're trying to revive them because of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? So they're like, hey, this is a great time to have a black print imprint. Right. But at the end of the day, you know, they let them go away for 30 years. So why should you believe them now in their generosity? I mean, they're in their like genuineness for the revival of Milestone. Yeah, I just heard recently, like Milestone was supposed to have like a black history comic that came out during Black History Month. And now they pushed it back until June. And I'm like, well, that's not black history month but whatever (laughs) but yeah like when you're beholden to like these larger corporate interests it does sort of stifle innovation in that way absolutely yeah so we're lucky that we never had to deal with that and as a result we're pretty much not only successful but now we know our customers the big part about it is with social media is you know your customers right it's not like it's some oh man i wonder what kind of customer i have that's something you have when when you go to like someone like diamond distribution or go to comic book shops, you still don't know who the heck your customer really is. But with social, you know exactly who your customer is. So you can um, refine your acquisition like over time. You know how to sell, you know who to sell it to, right? You know how to message. It's all powerful just because you're doing the right distribution. Yeah. I mean, this kind of feeds into my next question, which I feel like you may have just sort of answered. But how are you ensuring that that Black Sands really kind of distinguishes itself from other like indie publishers out there? Well, one thing is I don't feel like we're in the indie publishing space anymore to be considered another indie publisher at this point. Last year, we did like 1.2 million in sales. So like 120,000 books, right? And we're just bringing online a whole bunch of new titles from our creators. So so it's going to be a huge year for us. Our main niche is history before slavery. We don't do superheroes much at all. It's not not our thing at all. I think we have like one superhero title and that's it. Only because the creator has a sizable audience already. So we gave him a shot. We're like, hey, you already got a sizable audience. Mm -hmm. Let's let's see if we can make your comic into a reality and see if if your audience will tap in. And they really have been tapped in. So that's a good one. But for the most part, we wouldn't try to do superheroes because that market is closed. But Marvel and DC is just closed. There's no point even try to compete with them, that's them. That They own that genre. I wanted to go for a genre that was 100% ours to own, and that is history before slavery. So mythology, fantasy, history, drama, all that stuff in an ancient setting or uh, an ancient location or something like that is what we do. You know, it's not just Egypt. We have stories about Madagascar, the Mali Empire, Moorish Spain, the Inca right? The Malaysians, right? We just got a whole bunch of anti-colonial rhetoric. That's our power. That's where we make our content. And that's why everybody buys our stuff because it's more of the good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. When they buy our books, they know it's not going to be different or a different kind of vibe. It's more of the stuff they want to have, more exposure to indigenous people, to, to people, you know, from diaspora, and their actual culture as opposed to the indoctrination of European powers. You know? mm. No, I, I really like that. Years and years ago, God, I'm trying to remember when that was, maybe 20, 
15, 2016, we had an African comic creator uh, from Cameroon who was making a, he had, I think it was a line of comic books as well as like a video game that was around sort of like African traditions and African like mythology and stuff like that. And I remember him giving sort of like a similar sort of reason as you just had in terms of like, it's a lot more relevant to the audience that they're trying to serve to talk about it in terms of history or like to talk about history than to sort of create like some superhero kind of aesthetic, which I think at the time he was saying was really sort of more rooted in the West. Again, this is coming from like a, an African perspective, but yeah. Yeah. That's the one thing about it. It's like, like I know for a fact that it's a good thing for us to have this stuff, right. Without nobody messing up our power, you know, we got to have our power and people really underestimate how much it matters for us to, to own the narrative and stuff like that. I mean, there's too much crap they add to our stories just to go and control the narrative. One of the biggest examples I have is the recent movie that's probably going to be played all across America. In every single school in America, there's probably going to be Harriet coming on. They're going to be like, hey, kids, let's watch Harriet. It's so great. Talk about Harriet Tubman, right? They're going to use any other content for Harriet Tubman. They're going to use the movie Harriet as the example. And that one is... 100% fictional. They had a black man who was the main villain of the story, a bounty hunter, armed to the teeth in the South, because I guess they didn't just lynch black people who had guns in the South, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> who's, the mythical, who's the mythical villain that's the main threat to Harriet Tubman. This is some wild, like, they get like a thousand pitches a year for Harriet Tubman films. And they're like, you know what? The one that we're going to spend $10 million to produce, it's this one, right? And you just got to be like, wow, this is probably the only one that had that situation in it. Yeah, I remember that being a big criticism of that movie. For folks that are listening, uh, it's the Harriet movie with, uh, I think, Cynthia Erivo plays Harriet Tubman. I heard that was a big criticism of it, That the part you just mentioned about having a black antagonist as well. Yeah, it's not even real. He's not yeah, even real. They, they, they manufactured him for the movie. Yeah, it's like it's like what is that? That's them sabotaging a very like 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 to me even my fans right and a lot of people there's a reason why Yusuke flopped on Netflix, right? <laughs> like, like it's like all you had to do was tell the story of Yusuke. You didn't have to make it about um, mecha robots and and supernatural aliens. Like, you had to do all that. Just tell the story of Yusuke. It would have been great. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It's like it's like it's like they go so far over like like we just can't have history connected to black folks, uh-huh. right? In a positive <laughs> light, we got to make it different. You know, we got to make it more marketable. Yeah, there were. Uh, it's funny because I remember when that came out, and a lot of people are like, "Oh man, this is so good!" And I remember watching it and being like, "Really? That it's was, not that good." Was, <laughs> that, that, that was media hype, right? But once you actually got people who actually watched, they were like, well, "Why are we doing this?" Like, like he's not yeah. even the main character. Like, like <laughs> he's not the main character. There, there is, like you said, all these sort of like weird supernatural elements to it. And then I also think it was just too short. They tried to put too much into six episodes, and it just—I don't know—I didn't think it was good at all. And and the latest part was the actual historical parts. Yeah, <laughs> like the, where they were like flashbacks of like his time with, with Nobunaga. It was like, oh, that's that's amazing. And then all of a sudden, it's back to okay, trash story. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I would imagine probably one benefit of you using these like like historical stories and mythology and stuff like that is it sort of takes out that comparison element. Like if you're doing superheroes, for example, people might look at this and be like, oh, well, this is just like blah, blah, blah yeah, from Marvel. Can't do, can't do that. That's a huge power to us. They can't compare us. Right. So the critics have to have to have to actually make a well-informed decision. They can't just say, oh, this is just like this yeah, or something like that, you know? I'll tell you a story. I think I told this story on the show before, maybe like, I don't know, hundreds of episodes ago. But when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I really was into, I mean, I'm still into comic books now, maybe not in the same fervor, but I was really into comic books and was like, yeah, I'm going to make my own comic books. And I was in rural Alabama, just like drawing stuff up or whatever. And this is back when Yahoo had these user groups online, like Yahoo groups. Mm -hmm. And they had one that was like dedicated to black comic books. I think it was called like black comics with an X, like B L A C K C O M I X. And I remember going in there and I was like showing off my stuff like that. And one of the people who had uh, responded, <laughs> one of the people who responded was the Dwayne McDuffie had, had responded back to it and like trashed it, <laughs> but he trashed it. I mean, not in a good way, but certainly trashed it in the way of like, Oh, this is just like blah, blah, blah from Marvel. Like it was that sort of comparison, which honestly, I was literally basing it off of that. Like I was looking at Marvel comic books and trying to make the black Cyclops or whatever. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but and like trashed it. I was like, oh shit, I can't believe I, <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was trying to do that. And then I didn't really know who Dwayne McDuffie was then. Of course, people know who he is now in terms of his contributions. But like, yeah, I can see how not going that superhero route is a definite sort of like unique selling proposition and advantage for you in the market. Yeah, you definitely don't want to get caught in that bubble where where you end up basically doomed from the start. Yeah. Like you can't get market cap because it's already taken up. And what we're trying to do is the exact opposite. We're trying to basically develop a market from the ground up and then dominate that to the point where if, if you make anything, they're going to be like, oh, like Black Sands or like like, mm-hmm. like this title from Black Sands Entertainment. It starts being like we're the gatekeepers. Yeah. Right. So they've been avoiding this this topic for like 50 years. So. Nobody better complain at all when we dominate this space and then gatekeep. Oh, man. Like, nah, bro. Y'all had 50 years to do this. Y'all ain't never did it. So That's yeah, true. Gatekeep. That's true. Let's switch gears here a little bit. I know we've we've talked a good bit about Black Sands. And we'll we'll talk more about it later. But I want to know about your origin story since we're in the, in the vein of comics here. Tell me about where you grew up. I was born and raised in New York, right? Uh, Queens specifically. And also some time in Alabama as well. It's pretty cool, you know. At the end of the day, you know, New York is a different kind of place, man. You gotta, you gotta really embrace new ideas. Like everything changes in like freaking two years in New York. Nothing stays the same, mm-hmm. right? So, so that was always a huge thing for us was that you know times change a lot faster in New York than anywhere else. I was also in the military for a while, so um, you know I, I spent like about six years in the military, army. It's just been a pretty crazy ride. Not really knowing what the heck you're trying to do in life. So you, so I went to the military early, like right after high school. Okay. Uh, and it was good for me. I probably would have stayed in the military if my knees didn't blow out. You know? mm. But at the end of the day, destiny calls. You know, things changed. I did some high big brain stuff out to, outside the military. Like I was a freaking, oh yeah, a telecommunications engineer. So, you know, mm. it was a really, really big brain job. 
very lucrative. And then it all, got all outsourced to India. All right. This is like great outsourcing. In like 2010, everything started getting outsourced. That field just disappeared off the face of the earth. I moved around to San Diego to get a degree, um, finished it up in New York, Queens College as an economics major. And in about 2016, I finally got my first comic done, Kids the Kings. And that's when the actual business started happening. You know? Okay. Let's bring it back <laughs> to, to, again, those early days when, uh, you know, you said growing up in New York and you spent some time in Alabama. Were you surrounded yeah. by like a lot of like comics and comic books growing up? No, no, no. I was a big anime guy. So me and all my friends and stuff were anime dudes. So we were the, the old Toonami <laughs> peeps watching Dragon Ball and Yu Yu Hakusho and all the other stuff. That was my vibe. Also, video game fanatics. You know, we were huge video game fanatics back then. That was our thing, though. We, I wasn't really a comic book guy at all. Still ain't to this day. Hmm. You know? So back then, were you thinking, did you want to start your own, like, anime series or, or anything like that back then because you were sort of around it all the time? I wanted to make a video game series, a video game franchise based off Black Sands. You know? Okay. That was always my goal over time. In fact, I tried to do that first, get a degree in video game design. It didn't work out for me, but, you know, <laughs> but um, that's what I wanted at first, right? And that's what the original idea was made for. And then uh, I realized it was so expensive to make a video game, um, pivoted toward um, comics. Mm. And now when you say you kind of wanted to go into that, was this when you were looking to go to San Diego State? Uh, yeah, because I was going to the Arts Institute of San Diego first. Okay. Yeah, that, was first, that was the first place I went, and that was for um, video game programming or something like that. I think it was video game programming and design or something. And it wasn't for me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't for me. So I um, switched up, went to creative writing at San Diego, yeah, San Diego State, and then uh, eventually ended up in economics. I did the smart thing. I didn't do all the writing classes up front. I, I went to all my general studies so it could transfer over. <laughs> so I didn't waste too much time. <laughs> when it came to changing my degrees and stuff. You know? mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like you were at least kind of building that that foundation. And then I think even that sort of trial and error part with first studying games or, or going into like game development and realizing this wasn't what you wanted to do and then going to something else. I mean, college is kind of the time where you can figure those things out, like where you can decide what the path is that you want to take, even if it may not suit the goal then, like you're still building that foundation, at least from what we can see now in hindsight as to where you are now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it definitely was. Uh, but most probably the biggest important thing was um, the economics. <laughs> right. It's like I can't build a, a freaking um, I can't build a freaking a chart or a graph to save my life nowadays. Right. Because I haven't used it in so long. Right. But the fundamentals of economics is what led me to the success I am today. Right. Because I always think of things from a from a supply and demand perspective. Mm-hmm. Like I, like I was never trying to do things in oversaturated markets. I knew how to get my proper price points. Right. To figure out because the thing about it is, you know, I mean, my, the logic doesn't even make sense of how I do business. I avoid comic book shops as a comic book publisher, right? I avoid them like the plague, don't market to them, nothing I care about. That right there is a conundrum unless I have some kind of evidence behind it, right? It makes no sense if I'm doing that from an outside perspective, but that's what I do. I have the most expensive books in the black community, 
my books are just straight up more expensive than everybody else's by far. Yet I sell like 10 times more than the next person up. So I sell more units than everybody else while also having the most expensive books. And these are all decisions that I've come to based on the actual field. For me, from the economics perspective of this community, is that black people have no problem supporting things that matter to them. So that part of it is people think that, you know, black people are all poor and it's not true at all. It's a whole bunch of wealth in our community. And they buy very expensive things for their families. When they do it, it's to make sure that their kids have a great upbringing, right? That they have, you know, a legacy built for them and everything else. So what we're providing for them is really high luxury products that they can be proud of, both the parents and the kids. And, you know, we can price it out to match that. And they have no problem with that. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, I don't know if, if, if you've had time in New York, but there's a, a restaurant in Jamaica, Queens called Margarita's Pizza. Their cheese slice is like $3.50 for a slice of cheese. Everyone around them in the entire area has dollar slices. You know, they're like, hey, you know, these poor black people, they can't buy anything. This is a poor community, whatever, right? The one place that always has a line out the door with all the black people is the one that sells for three fifty, and everybody else won't listen to the evidence. They won't see the evidence saying just make a superior product, <laughs> and people will support you. They don't see that. All they simply do is just focus on you know their preconceived notions of what is the proper thing for the market. There's an interesting word that you used as you were describing that that I'd like you to to maybe talk about a little bit more, just in terms of how you're viewing your product in the market. You said luxury, which yeah, I like, don't think when people hear about comics or really anything like of this sort of caliber in this realm, they don't really think about luxury. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just curious, like, like talk yeah, about I'll, that a little I'll, bit more. I'll expand on that. I'm sorry. I just saw something from my wife. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Basically, um, what I mean by luxury is, at the end of the day, we do hardcover. We do hardcover anthologies of our books. They are library bound. So in other words, you can't break them apart if you want it. Like it's really tough to damage them permanently, which is great, right? Especially if you give it to younger kids. They're so easy to destroy things. The paper quality is very thick, so it's very hard to crease. Even if you're turning the pages like a crazy man, you won't crease the pages. The art style is absolutely phenomenal. And that's across the board in our entire company. You look at all the tiles and you're like, wow, these are all super high level professional stuff, mm -hmm. right? Basically, we're like Shonen Jump. Like, you know, Shonen Jump's basically the elites of Japanese, you know, manga, right? If you're in Shonen Jump, you're not going to be a bum. You're not going to have a basic, uh, you know, basic stuff. You're going to have the best content in the entire Japanese market. And that's basically what we're doing with our brand. And we price ourselves as such. You know, we're the best. So <laughs> people, you know, they price what they think they should be at. You know, I see people making comics for $5, $5 to sell a book for $5 because that's what the comic book shop does. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, our customers don't shop at comic shops. The overwhelming majority black consumers don't shop at comic book shops. They shop at Target or whatever. $10 book is normal to them. $20 hardcover is normal to them. I know you just said earlier, you were like, I don't go to to comic shops, you avoid comic shops. And I would imagine part of that reason is because of what you just said, that's not where your target market is going to be. But then also, 
I would imagine like talking to those comic shops, that's probably what some other publishers would do just in terms of like just trying to get their books on the shelves. Absolutely. Like that's their only way of knowing how to sell. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the thing. They just don't know how to sell any other way. So they use the traditional means to sell, you know, and the thing about it is you got to deal with pricing and stuff. Right. Why should they buy Black Sands for ten dollars when they could buy Black Panther for four? (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, because Black Panther is not about history. How about that? But, you know, they still, there's that preconceived notion of what the market is. Why should you worry about a middleman when you could do it yourself? Just cut the middleman out because they're already out of touch. Did your time in the army, like, help influence you any when it came to just, like, the idea of building Black Sands Entertainment? Mostly the management side. So I'm a big believer in having subject matter experts people who actually know what they're doing and can handle operations without my guidance. So over time, I've you know, gotten employees or, or officers that really knew how to take things on without my help. Well, I just do minimal amount of uh, information to get the product done. And that has significantly helped us to scale compared to other people. We're very hands-off in productions, and the people who are in charge, they know what they're doing. They have a lot of skin in, um, skin in the game, and as a result, they really know what they're doing. They learn the principles of management through me, and I might help in the initial recruitment of their team. But once that's it, you know, all I got to do is cut some checks, and comics come out. I don't want to have to think about what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> as long as our standards are up to date, right? <laughs> well, I'm not trying to figure out their story. If the fans like it, good. That's all I care about. Right. I'm not I'm not here like, well, I don't think this story should go this way. Like that is not my responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think also, like you said, with the number of titles that you have and that they focus even like on different cultures and stuff like and forgive me for this reference, but like you can't tile a period where you're like your name is over the whole thing and you're overseeing and micromanaging like every part of the production. Yeah, you can't do that. You got to you got to let let people do what they want. Just so long as they're in the ballpark, you're good to go. Because at the end of the day, this field is completely open. So it's not like you have to be super freaking like precise, right? You just you just mm. make good stories. For instance, I'll give you some examples. Granada's Shadow, that's our Moorish title that's coming out very soon, like in the next month or so. It's already done. And that one uh, is about an assassin who's a Moor who's basically trying to undermine the Crusaders, you know, when the, when the, when, when um, Spain was basically when when basically European powers and the Pope specifically was trying to take back Spain from from Moorish occupation, which has gone on for like 400 years. So this guy who got killed by uh, or his whole village and stuff got killed by uh, crusaders is now uh, an assassin taking out like really high level like leaders of the crusades. It's dope. It's a dope story, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and it's very different. From what you would normally expect when, when people make these titles, right? No superhero powers, nothing. Just straight up, you know, Assassin's Creed type joint. We have a uh, Lions game, Masters of Mali, where it's a martial arts tournament in ancient Mali. Like they have all these fighters from all across Africa coming together to fight in the capital. And one of the fighters is somebody who is the great grandson of previous uh, Mansa who was basically assassinated and usurped. So he has like a legacy he's trying to like reclaim in secret. So he joins this martial arts tournament and it's crazy. It's like one of those like it's just like Baki or something like it's really freaking hardcore, hyper masculine martial arts tournament type stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's a different vibe, but it's still the same thing. We're showing culture. Like, we're putting stories that will be dope in modern-day settings and just putting it in an ancient culture so you can always have a connection to a great ancient civilizations prior to slavery. That idea that Rome wasn't built in a day. Everybody in America says that. Rome wasn't built in a day. Whenever we have any type of adversity, well, Rome wasn't built in a day. Where's our Rome? Of the titles that you have now, like, is there one that really kind of stands out to you as a favorite? Out of the ones that are not made by me, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would say a Lions game is probably my favorite. Just because the story is crazy, first of all. You can have a lot of martial artists from all across Africa with their own cultures, their own martial arts style that's real. And a lot of characters that people may have never known before, but actually were real people and, um, in the old times. It's just culturally fucked. I mean, it's just culturally like, like amazing. And while still being like a hit for the parent, uh, for the fathers specifically, like this is not a title for the kids. They'll probably watch it like the teens will probably watch it anyway. But the parents, specifically the dads, them 30 to 40 year old dads are going to be like, this is the best comic I've ever read in my life. You know, it's going to have that (laughs) vibe. Super hyper masculine. Forget your feelings. Like this is raw. And we haven't done any titles like that at Black Sands, but this is one that I felt like. It would definitely work. And even though it's written by Kevin Brown, it was originally my idea. What I do is I do um, competitions in my Patreon community and I have like a topic. I'm like, you know, this kind of topic would really sell well to my fans. right? I automatically know what kind of topic it is. And I'm like, who's going to give me the best possible pitch for this story? And then I judge them and I say the one that does the best has the best possible pitch. They're given an opportunity to get published by us and we do everything. Right. We hmm. mentor them. We get them the artists. We pay for the production. We give them royalties on the book sales. They starting their career on the Black Sands all because they won a competition. But the competition has like 100, 200 applicants. So it's not like they're like just a random guy with an idea. They had to beat out a whole bunch of other people who had the same marching orders. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So this story was heavily curated before it ever got a chance to start being written. And this guy killed it. So I was like, yeah, this one right here has long, like super longevity. This one is probably going to get to screen very fast, like in the future after comic books come out. I think this one's going to be very quickly picked up as a um, either a live action or a show of some sort because it's never been done. It's perfect for the time we're in now. The Bakis, the Sengins, and all these other like martial arts tournament type shows are very in right now. So this is going to fit perfectly. Talk to me some more about this patron community. Like, How did that come about? Well, it's always been something that we've always had. Large community. Our community wasn't that big maybe two years ago. But once we started raising capital, it ballooned out of control, like really big. The way we give back to the community, besides the comic books that we make and stuff like that, is we give them opportunities. Opportunities is what we do. So voice acting opportunities, publishing deals through competitions. They do a competition. They get in there. Early access to investment rounds. So when we do our investment rounds, Patrons and the previous investors always get like two weeks or more of exclusivity where they get to buy up as much stock as they want before we open it up to the public. And that can make a huge difference in the world when we have early bird specials. Most of our patrons are actually investors already, so they have stock. They got like a 10% discount on their stock. So, you know, if you were investing like $5,000, you got $500 worth of stock for free. So, you know, like it makes a huge difference if you're on the higher side of investors. 
Like if you're investing $100, it ain't going to matter much if you get early access or not. But when you're investing thousands, it matters a lot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so that's been the huge reason why people join us. The future opportunities that we give them is, is like the call. And usually what happens is when we're raising capital, we have a downtick. So we lose a lot of patrons over time when we're at raising capital. And then when we're no longer raising capital and now we're preparing for the next round, we drastically increase in, in, in patrons. So it's like a huge ebb and flow. Everybody's basically flowing into the investment round. And then once that's done, everybody who didn't make it into that investment round is like, dang, I can't miss the next one. So they start flowing back into the patron, right? It's like, it's just the way the ebb and flow of the uh, patron community is now. So right now we're about 1,500 members in and we have over 20,000 a month in donations. So it's pretty big. It's a pretty big community. Much bigger than other people for the same amount of patrons. If you go on um, the website Graphion, you'll see that in our category, most people's average uh, pledge is 250, something like that. $2.50. Our average pledge is about $14. While we might have much less subscribers than some people on the list, we still collect way more than them, even though they're higher on the list, just because, you know, our community is like in. They're like super in. Yeah. Okay. So you you built this on Patreon. Okay. I was trying to, as you were sort of missing, I was like, what platform are you using? But you're, you're using Patreon. So, I, okay. All right. Yeah, Patreon has been, I think, really, for a lot of artists and creators, Patreon has been a pretty good platform for them to be able to at least sort of have those kinds of like different tiers and things like that. But if you're bringing in that much per pledge, that's great. That's great. I had Revision Path on Patreon for years and it was not that good. <laughs> we ended up getting well, off of the, there. But the, like the main, the main thing about like growth of, of patrons yeah. is it's not a monthly thing. Like I think the whole preconception of of patron is is bad because it 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 messes up the way people should be strategizing growing patron communities, right? It's all about opportunities. So in other words, let's say you're a video game video game companies do great on patron. One, here's why. They get betas. Betas all the time, right? Beta access. Hey, this is what we developed this week. Download it. Boom. But two, Oh, you want to be a side character? You want to write a, a line for a certain character who's like a side character in the story? You want to write a paragraph? Right? Submit your stuff. People getting opportunities to be a part of the production all the time, which is why those communities grow so fast. Because they're saying, hey, next week we're going to be um, getting some designs. We're going to put some some patrons in the community, um, into the game. If you're active at this date, you'll be able to apply. And then people flood in. Right? Because they want their opportunity to shine. Or we're about to have voice acting for um, our thing. We're about to do some casting. It's going to start on January 1st. So if you're a patron on January 1st, you'll be able to apply, right? Don't even do no open casting. Just straight up only um, patron casting. Boom, hundreds of people sign up. This is the way to get – converting people to sign up on Patreon is super freaking hard. So you got to give them very high incentive to do the first month. They'll stick around. About 60% of all the people who sign up for some kind of like special event, even if they don't make it, about 60% will stay long term. So 40% will die off pretty quickly when they don't get the job or whatever the heck opportunity is happening. But about 60% will stay because they see that there's always new opportunities coming eventually. That's the idea. Pump and uh, it's not pump and dump. It's pump and freaking like uh, (laughs) pump and hold. There you go. 
pump and hold, right? It's like you're trying to hold on as many people as you can after you pumped it. And then the next pump, you got to get another push. It's never monthly. Some months I'll, I'll just lose 50 patrons and mm-hmm. I won't gain a single patron that month. It'll be a net negative 50. So I'll, I'll gain patrons, but it's not at the rate to replenish the people that left. So I'll have a negative 50 on that month. And then some months I'll have 400 new patrons. So that's a nice, I mean, for folks that are listening, hell, for me too, that's a nice lesson on like how to manage doing some sort of like a patron type of a, a community like that if you're using Patreon. But no, that's good information to know. I mean, I think certainly, you know, you mentioned having this background in economics. That's probably something a lot of independent creators don't have when it comes to sort of approaching the mechanics of how you build equity and build money for the company in order yeah, to do the kind of things you want to do. Yeah, I just don't think people understand that. I mean, they don't even take the examples that are clearly in their face. Netflix doesn't get subscribers by having a whole bunch of shows they can watch. Netflix gets subscribers because Squid Game is the number one talked about series in the country and it just came out. Because Bird Box is the number one story in the country right now and people want to see it and they can only see it through Netflix. So they sign up and that's the first time they ever sign up and then they might stick around. You understand? But they got to have some big win to get people to sign up because people aren't just signing up. They aren't signing up because they have a service, right? They're signing up because of a specific thing they absolutely have to see. And then they're like, eh, might as well stick around. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So, but people don't look at that and say, that's the business model for subscriptions. It's what's going to get people to sign up. World of Warcraft spends $100 million on just expansions. Because they have to get those people who might have lapsed, those people who are not subscribing, to resubscribe or become a new subscriber. they got to have some big, giant, ridiculous event. It can't just be, hey, what a number one freaking MMO in the world. That's not good enough to get new subscribers. It's good enough to keep them, but it's not good enough to get them. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So you got to have big, over-the-top things in order to get people to mo- be motivated to subscribe. Because subscription is the most difficult purchase in the world they're in a contract you know so it's not like hey i just bought some food right people have no problem giving you a hundred dollars right but if you said hey just give me 15 dollars a month they're like oh wait whoa that is the truth (laughs) that is the truth absolutely (laughs) wait a minute a month you know can i just give you a hundred dollars you're like yeah it's gonna take you like seven months eight months to yeah but 15 a month, though, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Shark Tank, because you did mention at the top of the show, starting off the year with the Shark Tank appearance. Please, I want to know, like, how did it come about? What was it like facing Kevin Hart? Like, tell me all about it. He's brutal, man. He's brutal. He's a lot taller in real life. And I don't mean height. You know, he's like... <laughs> He's a very dominant dude, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that fight went on a lot longer than what y'all saw. You know, people were like, man, you should have countered for this. I did. I did. I did. <laughs> there was other offers on the table. But at the end of the day, you know, Kevin Hart knew he had veto power. He just knew it. Right. It's one thing about you got to know who you are and what you're worth. So he knew he had veto power. Right. And even the other other sharks admitted it too, like in during the debate. Like, for instance, Kevin O'Leary, he accepted my my counter. He said 10% and a 25 cent royalty on books. He was like, I'll take that deal for 500,000. He was like, I'll take that deal. But he understood that the more we talk is like, you know, Kevin Hart 
is Kevin Hart. If he's saying he's going to make this show, if he's saying he's going to give you this, that, and the other, that's not a normal resource that you'll ever get. You know, that's like, like he's saying this, he said, that's a lot different from what, you know, like that 30%, like you're, you're paying, you're not giving up 25% equity for $500,000. Like, you know, that's not, that's not what you're doing. You're not giving up more, 25% more equity than you came in for, right? For the money. The money doesn't matter at all. In fact, you didn't even need the money. The reality was you were doing that for Kevin Hart's specific direct involvement in all of your productions from now until the end of time. And that's a very strong person. Plus Mark Cuban, right? <laughs> Plus Mark Cuban and his resources, but specifically Kevin Hart, who's like a top five paid actor in the world, like independent productions and businesses that he's just straight up done himself, who understands the idea of owning as opposed to, hey, let's give this to Hollywood and have them make a show. He's like, he doesn't believe that. He believes in owning. He's already done all that. It's time for him to own it. It's himself. So this is huge when it comes to like what it means like on the deal side. So a lot of people look at it, they just think 25%, you got robbed. And you're like, do you know how much it costs for Kevin Hart to endorse your company? Right. Like, like the real dollar implications of that endorsement he said when chase like hey check out the new card right and kevin hart does a commercial that's three million dollars minimum <laughs> right that's, that's three million dollars minimum for to use a commercial with kevin hart doing it you know that super bowl commercial probably cost them 10 million dollars minimum the super it was like a 30 second commercial mm-hmm. right it's like that is the reality of of just the endorsement side not even his actual like real like work his real like actual like involvement in productions. So the implications is way more than 20 than 25 percent is what I bought. Yeah. Like how have things changed since the uh, Shark Tank appearance? Well, one, uh, we're getting a lot more publicity. We get our verifications and stuff like that. We're starting to get that. Uh, sales has jumped. We still haven't gone public with the deal yet just because we're still negotiating. But we're about done. We're very close to making announcements on our actual like go-to-market strategy. But once that happens, that's when the, the stuff will really hit the fan. We have a huge amount of like um, major press um, things happening right now. So mm-hmm. that's going to be coming out within the next two weeks. Uh, we're going to have like stuff like that happening. So it's going to be huge rolling success. The idea is don't lose your 15 minutes of fame. He's like, get on it and keep getting the press, keep getting the uh, things, keep staying in front of the camera as much as you can in order to stay relevant, be the top story. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. We're lucky that we're still capable of doing that, even though a lot of other Shark Tank companies don't have this kind of like follow up. Right. They don't get on the big major shows or anything like that. So the fact that we are is freaking huge for us. We're doing that before Kevin Hart says, man, Black Sands is like the best thing ever. We're about to make billions. Right. It's like, it's, <laughs> right. Well, once he starts saying that publicly, that's when it really will start becoming like an unstoppable force. Mm. You know what I mean? Because you'll have that endorsement and then coming from him like that, a, a lot yeah, of other just, people are just going to check it out from there. Yeah, not just an endorsement, but big money people will start gravitating toward you. Mm-hmm. Not everything has to be made by us. Like Black Sand is clearly going to be made by us. We want to control it and we want to own everything of it. Right. But there's some titles that we just don't have the manpower for. But we don't want to stop these creators who are under our brand from having their own shows. So we might have more traditional deals out there for some other IPs in our in our company, which makes like three, four, five, six different shows 
all being under direct development at the same time, all because of, you know, Kevin Hart's heartbeat productions and everything else. So that's the crazy thing about it, right? It's like, this is about to be a black renaissance when it comes to content and ownership, because I have investors, regular small investors. And this is the thing I always tell people too. If we get to a billion dollar valuation in say five years, which isn't impossible, it's not impossible at all. Two seasons of Black Sands would have already came out. Licensing and merchandising deals with Walmart and everything else would have already probably happened by then. And these are like really big licensing deals. So if this is already happening within five years and we get to a billion dollar market cap, right, and go IPO, somebody who invested $5,000 at my $5 million valuation back in 2020, they mm-hmm. maxed out. That was the max that the government said they could do because they're unaccredited. So they $5,000, the max you can give. And they gave 5000 because they just were hardcore believing in Black Sands. They will be able to flip that 5000 for a million dollars, 200 times return, because that's the valuation we're at now. We're at a million dollar market, I mean, a billion dollar market cap, and they invested at $5 million. They basically are getting 200x, roughly around there, if they sell their shares. That's huge. That's real generational wealth. And there's a lot yeah. of people who did it. There's a lot of people who invested at the max in the first round. What would you say has been the toughest thing that you've had to deal with since starting all of this? Fighting my own personal like um, frustrations, not blowing up. I mean, online, they see my, my bravado right, and my toughness. But I hold a lot back. I hold a lot of my hating back. I'm a huge hater. Right. I just don't let nobody know. I believe if you're not a hater, you ain't really you don't really care about life. Like you got to be mad when somebody else gets an achievement (laughs) that you didn't get, especially if you've done more than them. So I'm a huge freaking hater holding that energy back, not disparaging other colleagues, even though I know their claim is completely bogus or their achievements should have been my achievements. You know, I should have been on certain lists or whatever. That was the thing that I felt was like the, the hardest thing to do over this entire time. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, you can really make yourself as this super negative force in this space if you, you know, wear your emotions on your, your chest. And I try to, you know, even though people see me all the time bashing Hollywood, Hollywood's not a person, right? Right. <laughs> right. So I was like, <laughs> I used to always articulate things to not make it personal, not try to burn any specific bridge. So if you still were hurt by what I was saying, the the main thing was you probably were somebody that I didn't want to be in colleagues, I mean, ever work with in the first place because you're one of those people. So that was the hardest thing, controlling that, because, you know, like I said, we've probably been the best independent publisher for three years now, yet we were never on a top 10 indie black mangas or indie black comics you need to read, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like we never got any kind of accolades or something like that. Regardless of what the numbers said, they just yeah. didn't care. They didn't like any research. You did Google black comic books, you'd find us. So how the hell did you avoid us? <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, because I've been I've been doing this now with Revision Path for nine years, and I share that frustration that you're talking about with like you put in all this work and you don't feel like sometimes everyone sort of recognizes that or gives you the credit that you feel you deserve for it. That's just, I mean, unfortunately, that's just the media. Like, the media is always going to glom on to whatever, like, the newest thing is. Whether you've been in, especially, like, if you've been doing this for a while and you have longevity, they really only care about the new stuff. They're like, what's the new thing that's coming out? 
What is it that is keeping you motivated to continue? I feel like I might know the answer to this question, but I'd love to, to hear from you sort of where does this drive come from? I just want to see Rome burn. Like, that's it. I just want to see Rome burn to the ground. I'm Hannibal at the gates. I always think of that whenever I, I think of what my mission is. I'm not here to be successful. I'm not here to tell my great story. You know, people always try to make it so indifferent. Oh, I'm just trying to tell a great story. You know, I just want to be a creative person. I love this. I'm so humble. No, I want to see Rome burn to the ground. And that means we have to have absolute veto power and control over our own stories. It's the only way we'll ever be able to stop Hollywood from dictating what is acceptable black history. Because we don't need 10 new black slave and civil rights stories a year. I don't need to see the new ways of lynching people. Like, oh, man, I just need to see that. I need to see a new way. Oh, we're about to do an Emmett Till uh, documentary. Yeah, I definitely want to see Emmett Till die again. That would be great. Oh, you know what? You know what? This black history, we're deciding we're going to talk about the Black Wall Street Massacre. Yeah, we're going to do a whole series on the Black Wall Street Massacre. I said, how about do a series on Black Wall Street before the massacre? How about that? You know, it was like, it was like but we don't control the budget. We don't control the, the means. We don't control any of it. So if we don't take that control and show that we can actually do numbers with that control, then they will always be able to dictate what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable for black people to consume. And I'm tired of it. I want I want to see that entire infrastructure burn to the ground. And the only way that's possible is if we dominate this space and be complete tyrants once we get there. Who are some of the people that influence you? There's three, right? I said this in a, in a previous interview. There's three that influenced me. Uh, be surprised. One of them was Kevin Hart, which was kind of ironic. Tyler Perry and uh, George Lucas. Those three people, what I respect is not success. I don't care about success because you can be successful and a complete tool at the same time. <laughs> like your whole career could be canceled out. Everything could happen overnight because you are still a product of the system. So boldness is the stuff that I respect more than anything. People who risk a lot in order to be successful. For George Lucas, it was holding on to his IP rights, making moves to make sure that he never lost them over decades of freaking negotiating with Hollywood elites and stuff like that. He was like, no, I'm not giving up these rights no matter how much y'all pay me. And that made him the only billionaire who wrote a story. There is no other billionaire who wrote a story in the, in the world, period. Everybody who's written a story don't even have $100 million to their name. The creator of Naruto, Kishimoto, he's worth $40 million today. If you believe the highest estimates of his net, of his, um, net worth. But the man's IP, Naruto, has brought in $15 billion. So he's not even worth 1% of his brand. Stan Lee died with less than 1% of Marvel's brand. This is the reality of all these people. They simply, they're considered successes by the world standards, but at the end of the day, they got robbed. They made everything. They worked nonstop <laughs> for their entire lives, and they didn't even have 1% of the thing that they created. And only George Lucas was the one that ran the table. He basically kept 50% of everything Star Wars ever made, <laughs> and that's power. Tyler Perry, everybody hates him in the industry. Because he's going to make his stories whether you like it or not. He said, am I a fan of Tyler Perry's movies? Eh, sometimes. For the most part, it doesn't really matter what I think. 
All I know is if Tom Perry feels like making a movie, he's going to do it. You can invest. If you don't, he's going to make it anyway and release it right on your freaking network, whether you like it or not. He's going to do whatever the heck he feels like. He's going to cast whoever he feels like. He's going to buy whatever he feels like, and you can't stop him. And the reason why you can't stop him is because he did all this. He was rich before you ever met him. Before mm-hmm. Hollywood ever gave him a chance, his shows were already generating millions of dollars locally through the fans. Build the infrastructure. And then these people in Hollywood can't dictate nothing to you. When they're like, we want to buy Medea, they're like, no. You can fund some of it. But you ain't owning Medea, whether you like it. Like, I'm just not giving it to you. I don't care what you what you offer me. I already make millions of dollars. That's the grind. You know, and Kevin Hart, he said, why the hell am I going to get less than 5% of a tour or 3% of a tour, or 3% of a tour's proceeds, if I'm the fucking main attraction? If the tickets are being sold because of me, why do I give get only 3% of the total amount of money? Everybody else is making money off of me. So how about I pay for everything, I hire everyone, I get the venues, I do the marketing, and then if I sell out, I keep freaking 80% of everything made. He went into massive millions and millions of dollars up front. You can't do that stuff after the show is already done. You got to book tours like half a year in advance. So he had to go real deep into the red before his first show. So that's power to me to make plays like that and just trust it. Say, I trust myself to make this happen. I believe my fans truly believe in what I'm doing and I'm going to finally flip this industry. I'm not going to be an actor for the rest of my life. I'm not going to let people dictate my career. And if they, if they feel slightly offended by what I did, they can cancel out my entire career. You can't cancel them now. You can't cancel Tyler Perry. You damn sure can't cancel George Lucas. You can't cancel them. No matter how much you care, you can't do nothing to stop them. And that's what I that's the people that I really respect. People who have done enough, built enough of their own fan base that they cannot be stopped by conventional means. You can't stop them. Where do you see yourself in the like next 5 years? Like where do you want Black Sands Entertainment to be? Where do you want to be personally as a mm-hmm. business owner? Like talk to me about that. Well, I just want to be in the top 10 animes in the world. Period. So top 10 animes in the world for Black Sands. Maybe some video games down under our umbrella as well. But the idea is if that happens, we're basically going to dominate the, the entire space. Right? Because we're independent. And that's never happened before. It's never happened before. An independent production get into the top 10 in the world and do massive licensing and merchandising. It's never happened. And when, they, when I proved that model... It proves that black consumers are no longer something that can be measured by Hollywood because they've never seen it before. They've never seen somebody just do it without any of the metrics they normally would use. And that is where I would like to be. I would like to just be, you know, you know, a kingmaker in this space. I decide what's hot, what's not. And because of that, they all have to work with us, not just me, but all the other creators under my my umbrella and give us the best possible deals or they don't work with us. Period. You know, because we're just automatically the kingmakers in this space. If you want to do anything in this space, you have to come through us. Right. So that's the idea of what I want the company's position to be in. Right. That's the idea of where I want Black Sands, the anime to be in. Right. And for me, I like to relax a little bit in five years. Probably can't, but it's very intense right now. <laughs> it sounds intense. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, I'm in my Thanos mode right now. Right. I'm trying to get the stone. <laughs> I'm trying to get the stones, and I don't care who I got a crush to do it. 
right? <laughs> I just can't wait for the day when I finally rest. He's done what he was supposed to do. It's now broken. The system is broken. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and about Black Sands Entertainment and everything online? Yeah, so follow us on all platforms, Black Sands Entertainment. Manuel Godoy on LinkedIn if you want to work with me. BlackSands.com is my store, right? So you want to buy some books, go ahead and get them from there. BSP Comics is my app. So you can download a whole bunch of freaking black comic books there. You don't actually have to download it. It's server-side, so it's about 70 megabytes for the app. So you don't have to worry about that. There's 45 different titles from all types of creators. Really cool stuff. And uh, lastly, if you want to be an investor, investor round is over. We just raised a million dollars for BSP Comics. Our next investment round is for the Black Sands anime. In order to participate, it's probably best that you just sign up for Patreon at patreon.com slash Black Sands because they're going to be the first investors. And that investment round should happen in about the summer. So there you go. Manuel Godoy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, your passion and your drive behind what you're doing with Black Sands Entertainment is is super infectious. Like I'm hyped up just listening to you talk about this. Like this has felt like a masterclass in how to build an empire. So I hope for people that are listening, they definitely will check it out and we'll get behind you. I mean, it sounds like you already have a very strong community behind what you're doing. And I hope that with what we're doing here with Revision Path by, you know, having you tell your story, we can get this out to, to even more people. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it, man. Big thanks to Manuel Godoy, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Manuel and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. What did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Spotify. Five stars, of course. (laughs) The more people that you tell about the show, the bigger we become, and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.